We're going to hear in just a few moments again from Dr. Jonathan Sarfati. We're delighted to have him as part of a series that we began last week. The series is titled, You've Got Questions, God Has Answers. This is the second of those eight weeks, and we're answering common questions that people have about Christianity. Last week, we looked at the question, how do we know God exists? Today, is the Bible consistent with science? Next week, is the Bible reliable? So we hope that you'll be able to come next week. We won't have Dr. Sarfati. You just have me, so deal with it. uh, We hope you can come. That'll be during our, our second hour, this hour, next week. I also want to make mention of this afternoon at 2.30, Dr. Sarfati is going to entertain questions. We'll have a Q&A session this afternoon at 2.30. So I'm sure as he made his first presentation and then just in a moment as he makes his second, you've got some questions that are arising. We'll have an hour. We have one hour and only one hour because Dr. Sarfati has to get to another place at which he's going to be speaking this evening. But I encourage you to come back so that uh, we can ask uh, and answer those questions. Without further delay, Dr. Sarfati for a second talk. Oh, well, thank you for coming back. It seems a bit lower numbers this time. Okay, lost time. All right, never mind. I could, um, you've all heard where I come from, and I'm a PhD scientist. You know all about that. Okay, so just to remind, uh, just so the books and DVDs are there, just so you can go get more equipped, you can find out more information about what I'm teaching. Now, it's only fair that if you're going to ask me questions at 2.30, I do encourage you to come to ask questions. And I think there's no such thing as a dumb question, except the question that should have been asked and wasn't asked when you had the chance, okay? And think about this. Um, you're, you're a service to your fellow uh, church members because they may be thinking of the same thing, and you're the one who asks. So you, it actually answers not just you, but answers other people who have the same question, okay? So can I ask you a question to start with then? Now, what was Jesus' first miraculous act recorded in the Gospels? Yeah, I think people say this, which I don't think is right, okay? And so you go to John chapter 2, the wedding at Cana, and it tells you it's the first sign to his disciples during his earthly ministry. But I don't think it's the first miracle he did in the Gospel. Could go back a chapter, what do we see? In the beginning was the word... The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Well, who is the Word here? That's clearly Jesus, right? But it tells you, through him all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. So you see, even before Jesus was born, he was the creator of the universe. And this is very important. John wrote his gospel so people who believe in Jesus have eternal life. But he starts off showing that Jesus is God and creator. So Darwinism is thus uh, an attack on the person and work of Jesus. Now it's very important that Jesus is God because the cults all get this wrong. But you see, when God spoke to various prophets in the Old Testament, you see, one of them, you guys, Americans say Isaiah here, don't you? The Australians say Isaiah. And they're both wrong because in Hebrew it's Yeshayahu. Okay, so God spoke for Yeshayahu and said, I am the Lord, which is actually Jehovah, Yahweh, the divine personal name of, of God. And apart from me, there is no Savior. So you see the logic here? If Jesus is Savior, he must be God. He can't be created like all the cults teach. But he's also fully man. He's both fully God and fully man. That's how he can be the mediator between God and man, because he's both God and man. And this is foretold as well. The Redeemer will come to Zion to those in Jacob who repent of their sins. Now the Hebrew here, Goel, actually means kinsman redeemer, and it's translated this way in the book of Ruth. 
And that gives you the requirements of the kinsman redeemer. And one important requirement is that he must be related by blood to those whom he redeems. So if Jesus is the kinsman redeemer, he must be related to us by blood. How can this be? Well, look at the Gospels. Now, first of all, you have Matthew's Gospel, um, which was written, first of all, to a Jewish audience. So he starts Jesus, um, his genealogy, with the first Jew, Abraham. So Abraham... It's, uh, for, then Abraham goes to King David, then King David through this line of kings of Israel ends up with Joseph and notice the dotted line there because Joseph wasn't the biological father of Jesus. Jesus was born of a virgin. So Matthew is tracing the adoptive legal line of Jesus. Now Luke takes care of the biological line, Mary's line. That's why the names are different in Matthew and Luke because Luke is going through Mary and Matthew's going through Joseph. And you can tell from the Greek that's what's actually happening here. So Luke goes backwards from Jesus to Mary to King David. Mary was a son, was a descendant of a son of David called Nathan. So both Mary and Joseph come from King David. And then we go to uh, Abraham. But see, uh, Luke also wanted to write to Gentiles, to non-Jews. So he doesn't stop at Abraham. He goes to where Abraham came from. Where do you find that? You find that in Genesis 11 and Genesis 5. And you see that Luke takes these names as historical people. Abraham didn't drop out of the sky. He was a son of Terah, son of Nahos, um, etc., to the son of Noah. And then to the son of Adam, who is called the son of God, not the son of an ape. Okay, so you can't mix evolution and the gospel. Adam is said to be a direct creation of God, a real historical person, the ancestor of Jesus, and the ancestor of everyone else on earth who's ever lived, no matter what race or people group um, or country you come from. You come from Adam, and therefore you can be saved through Jesus, your kinsman redeemer. You throw out a historical Adam, and you get rid of the kinsman redeemer as well. Now let's go back to what Jesus said, because if Jesus really is God, it means we need to listen to him. And he said, Scripture cannot be broken. Now, is Genesis part of Scripture? Well, last I checked it was. That means he's saying Genesis can't be broken. And how often he would say, it is written, and that would settle the argument for him. And he rebuked the Sadducees. Have you not read what was spoken to you by God? What you read in Scripture is what God has spoken to us. And you know what the word Bible stands for? Basic instructions before leaving earth. Now, see, the Bible is a historical book. You can't separate the history of the Bible from the morality and the theology. Now, marriage is clearly under attack in the Western world. That's a moral teaching. But when Jesus was asked about this, he goes to the history behind it. From the beginning of creation, God made the male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, the two will become one flesh. So what's he quoting here? You know, he's quoting from the very first two chapters of Genesis as real, literal history as the foundation for marriage. Now, there are certain people around uh, who say that Jesus said nothing about gay marriage, and you find them in liberal theological cemeteries, I mean seminaries. (laughs) But clearly, 
Jesus only recognized marriage as a male and female. And he's going back to God creating that in the beginning. God created one man and one woman at the beginning, Adam and Eve only. And that's why this is the marriage that God began in the beginning was one man, one woman, the only type. And notice the two become one flesh, not more than two. So it's not one man and multiple wives. It's one man to one wife. And a man leaves his father and mother because the first man, Adam, had no father and mother. The two become one flesh because Eve was taken from Adam's flesh. So when you have the history of Genesis, the morality of marriage makes perfect sense. If you abandon this history, then marriage doesn't have a leg to stand on anymore. And a bit of science for you here is that the rib is the one bone in the body that will grow back. So Adam didn't have to spend his whole life with a missing rib. It would have grown back. God knew what he was doing. Now, modern surgeons discovered this a few decades ago, but it looks like the Bible knew all along uh, what bone to take out that would grow back. So modern science sometimes catches up with the Bible. Now, let's look at a few other things. I mean, people seem to think that Genesis 1 is a hard passage to understand, but is it really? Well, creation days, what do they mean? Well, I think everywhere else in the Bible, no one seems to have any problem understanding what day means. Apparently, only Genesis is a place where it's supposed to be so difficult. But is it, though? Let's look at how what God himself wrote with his fingers. When he gave the Ten Commandments, uh, six days you shall labor, do your work, the seventh day the Sabbath of the Lord your God. And then he gives the reason for, the, for this command, that which sets up our working week, is that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and sea and all that is in them rested on the seventh day. So it means the days of our week are the same sorts of days as the days of creation week. You see, if the days were millions of years long, as some people want to tell you, wouldn't that mean we have to work for six million years and rest for one million years? Long, long weekend to look forward to, I guess. It doesn't seem to make much sense, does it? And also, it shows that this must have happened in history because it's supposed to be an example for us, and it's only an example if God really did this work in real space-time history. It's not an allegory or literary framework. It must have happened in history for it to be an example for us to work in history as we do now. Now let's look at a few other things. People will want to tell me that I shouldn't worry about Genesis and Adam and Eve. I should just preach the gospel. Okay, then let's follow the example of the greatest gospel preacher of all time. I don't mean Billy Graham. I mean the Apostle Paul. Fair enough? Okay, how did he do it? See, here's how he did it to the, to the Corinthians. Maybe the earliest Christian creed on record... Uh, the gospel by which you are being saved, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he rose on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. See, the gospel doesn't dangle rootlessly in a vacuum. It depends on the rest of the scriptures to give it a historical foundation. See, gospel means good news, but you can't really understand good news unless you know there's bad news. See, why do we need a savior? Savior is because we are sinners. Okay, and that's where Paul goes on to explain where human sin began and its consequence. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the death. For as an Adam will die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. You see, Paul goes back to Genesis 3, names Adam, 
as the one who sinned and the consequence was death. And it was clearly included physical death because God said you were made from dust. Now you're going to go back to dust. A physical death was a punishment for sin. And this explains why Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, took on human nature to live a perfect human life that we couldn't do, and then he died a perfect sacrifice on the cross to pay the penalty we deserved for our sin. It's, um, Jesus took that all. He said on, at the end, it is finished, which in Greek is tetelestai, which was written on bills of debt to say paid in full. So Jesus' death paid in full for every sin a believer will commit. But that wasn't the end, of course, because on the third day, Jesus rose physically from the dead. It was clearly physical. The tomb was empty. The grave clothes were there. The tomb was, but no body was there. And he appeared to 500 people at once. He ate fish. And that proved he was who he said he was and that God had accepted that sacrifice. And Christianity would have been dead on arrival. If they could have found the body of Jesus, that's the end of Christianity. But, of course, they never could. And you see in Matthew's gospel, uh, some silly stories were floating around. Oh, just tell everyone that when you were asleep, the disciples came and stole the body. That's silly, isn't it? Because if you're asleep, how could you possibly know what happened? It's, it's a daft idea, but that's how desperate they were to explain the history of the empty tomb and Jesus appearing to lots of eyewitnesses. But you see how Paul makes this connection. Um, Adam sinned and brought physical death. Jesus died physically on the cross to pay the penalty we deserve. And he rose physically. Paul emphasizes in the chapter it's a physical, a bodily resurrection. Therefore, the death that Adam brought must likewise be a physical death, at least include a physical death component. And this is chapter 3. Now he goes to chapter 2. And again, he's quoting Genesis. The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. You see, Adam is explicitly called the first man, not one of a whole lot of humans evolving from ape-like ancestors. He is called the first man. And he's contrasted with Jesus, who is called the last Adam. Please, not the second Adam. It says the last Adam here, right? And the first man had to be given life. The last Adam was the life giver and again you go to genesis 2 the first man was made from the dust of the ground you see so we see paul quoting genesis 2 in his gospel presentation as well as genesis 3 then he goes to genesis 1 because he's now talking about the resurrection body so he goes back to the history of genesis 1 where god created the universe and he goes to the things that god created and first of all, he goes to the different kinds of plants bearing seed. That's day three of creation week. And you see, in Genesis 1, you have ten times God said things reproduce after their kind. So God, Paul uses the history of Genesis to make a theological point from this history. And then he goes to gen- days five and six. Not all flesh is the same. There's one kind for humans, animals, birds, and fish. And you see how Paul has deliberately reversed the order of days five and six to put humans first. And then he goes to the events of day four. And again, he mentions the things that God created on day four, the sun, the moon, and the stars. So see how Paul's gospel message went back to, to the first three chapters of Genesis and he took them as historical. And another thing to think about here is that Paul expected his readers and hearers in the early church to know 
what Genesis 1 to 3 said. He didn't have to explain what God created on, crea- on during creation. He didn't have to explain who Adam was. He expected his readers to have been taught that, which proves the early church was discipled in the book of Genesis right from the beginning of the church. And that's where you find the first prophecy of the Messiah. The seed or the offspring of the woman would be the one to destroy the serpent. And this is a prophecy of the virginal conception. He's called the seed of the woman because he has no human father. See see how the virginal conception has its beginnings in Genesis chapter 3. Like all the doctrines of Christianity, they're basically found in the early chapters of Genesis. Now I just use the term virginal conception just to explain the miracle was the conception. The birth was an ordinary verse. It's a con- conception that was miraculous. And just to remind us that life begins at conception. This is a scientific fact. It's not a religious fact. It's a scientific fact. Life begins at conception. Jesus was once a fertilized egg and an unborn baby. Okay, so hopefully this is explaining a few things, but also um, I'll just give you a little touch. I know you're going to cover it in more detail in your excellent question and, and answer series over the next few weeks. So I just want to cover it briefly here, but, but do attend the next this, the actual session on it for more detail. Um, the big picture here, why is death, death and suffering if we've got a God in love? Well, the big picture is that it was Adam's sin that brought it into the world. God didn't make it that way. It became that way because of sin. It was man that brought death into the world. But evolution says diametrically opposite. Evolution says death brought man into the world. So you cannot mix these two pictures. They are diametrically opposed to each other. See, evolution, survival of the fittest, is rarely death of the unfittest. Under evolution, the meek do not inherit the earth. So I'm really puzzled by people who want to tell me they can. They, they, they think that Jesus used evolution. It's totally against the character of Jesus we see in the Gospels. Now, I'm not saying they're unsaved if they believe in evolution. I'm saying there's a huge logical disconnect, though. And in fact, the founding chairman of Creation Ministries in Australia was a saved scientist and evolutionist and Christian for decades. But he eventually realized he could not mix these two. So he basically, he said, I'm going to repent of believing this picture. I'm going to trust what God's word says. It's this picture. Even if I haven't got all the answers, I'm going to trust that God has the answers. And believe this. Now, some people haven't made that connection, but I do encourage you that we should have a logical faith. And when you go back to this chapter, in the beginning was the word. The Greek here is logos, and that's the word we get logic from. So surely part of being Christ-like is being logical. But being illogical is not the unforgivable sin, which is probably a good thing, right? Now, let's look at a few other things here that uh, are important here. Now, the millions of years has this problem, too. So I'm going to go to this picture here. This is the Garden of Eden, and God said everything here was very good. Seven times he said everything was good. The seventh time was very good, and seven's a number of perfections. When God finished creating, everything was perfect. Now, go to the millions of years view. That came about... Uh, over 200 years ago when people rejected divine revelation, including revelation of a flood. And that meant they believed the rocks and fossils formed very gradually over millions of years. So it means this Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve would be on all these rock layers that formed over millions of years. 
slowly and gradually. But the rocks contain fossils. And fossils mean dead things. And, and when we look at the fossil, we can tell not only do, obviously something's died, but they also have diseases like gout and osteoporosis and even bone cancer. And then now God's saying everything here is very good. So bone cancer is very good. I don't know what very bad is supposed to mean if bone cancer is very good. And you have human fossils there too. So, I mean, you've got human death before sin if the millions of years picture is for you. You can't escape it. That's the major problem of the millions of years is putting death of animals and humans before Adam's sin, which means you are undermining lots of the Bible, including... Again, from the gospel resurrection passage, 1 Corinthians 15, death is called the last enemy. It's not the way God made things. It's an enemy. It's an intruder. Then you have Romans 5. Sin came into the world through one man, death through sin. And Romans 5 is contrasting two heads of humanity. You have Adam, who brought sin and death, and Jesus, who brought righteousness and life. Next chapter, the wage of the sinner's death but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, over and over again, we are seeing this connection of death and sin and millions of years undermine this connection. And that's a huge problem because if death has nothing to do with sin, how could Jesus' death pay for our sin? That's a real gospel problem. And also the authority of Scripture is undermined because how much of the Bible do we have to chop out to make it agree with evolution? And I've shown you mostly New Testament passages. Now, there are people who rebuke me and tell me the Bible is not a scientific textbook. And I say, well, thank goodness, because textbooks always go out of date. (laughs) But not the Bible, though, right? And the thing is, Adamson had a cosmic effect. It affected the whole creation. Adam and Eve had dominion. So when they fell, everything underneath them fell. And just to give you a plug here, uh, this has implications for the alien life idea because it means that Adam's sin would have cursed the Vulcan and Klingon home worlds, okay? And Coruscant, okay? Uh, but the problem, another problem is that... Jesus, God became man to die for human sin. He didn't become Vulcan to die for Spock's sin, all right? And we have a book and DVD about that. So this was shown in the theaters earlier this year, actually. And also had effects locally. The, the, when Adam's sin had changed our diets, humans and animals were created to be vegetarian, not to kill other things. But of course, that's changed now because... Uh, when God cursed the creation, we cursed the ground when Adam sinned, which means that the plants were no longer as nutritious as they once were. I mean, broccoli is proof of the curse. <laughs> and now the animals are part of, of the diets of many humans and animals. And I should also say that my home country of Australia is proof of the curse. Australian Tourist Commission has asked us to come up with a song that we could perform overseas, a song to help bring the tourists back to Australia. That's right, so we focused on the wonderful wildlife and the fabulous fauna that Australia has to offer. 
red back funnel with blue ring octopus, taipan, tiger snake, and a box jellyfish, stonefish, and the poison thing that lives in a shell that spikes you when you pick it up. Come to Australia, you might accidentally get killed. Your life's constantly under threat. Have you been bitten yet? You've only got three minutes left before a massive coronary breakdown. Red back funnel with blue ringed octopus, taipan, tiger snake, adder box, jellyfish, big shark. Just waiting for you to go swimming at Bondi Beach. Come on, come to Australia. You might accidentally get killed. Your blood is bound to be spilled. With fear, your pants will be filled. You might accidentally get killed. So you believe we live in a fallen world now, right? But the thing is, that's not the end of the, of the issue because God has promised to redeem and restore and recover, renew. Okay, these are all rewords, which again imply that something good was ruined, you see. Now think about this. You see, if millions of years of death and suffering were in our past, restoration by definition would mean going back to millions of years of death and suffering. That's not very encouraging. See, what you believe about the past affects what we believe about the future. But yet in Revelation, the last few book parts of the Bible, you have God wipe away all tears, no more death, crying, sorrow, pain. Because these things were the result of the curse. And the curse will be abolished. And the tree of life will once again flourish. So you see the, the picture of the Garden of Eden before sin came and ruined it all. You see how the Bible goes around full circle. Back to a time before human sin. In fact, there'd be no more possibility of sin in the new heaven and the new earth. It'd be even better than Eden. You see how um, the last book expects the readers to understand the first book. So the question is, if, if fossils happened after Adam's sin, what do you think could have caused it? Well, Jesus believed the flood of Genesis. You can see that he affirms Noah was real, the flood was real, and even the ark was real. And when you go to Genesis itself, you see how God piles up the universal language. Not just one case of all, which may not always mean all. When God is piling up this universal language, all the high mountains under the whole heaven, all flesh died, all saw creatures, all mankind, everything on the dry land, every living thing, only Noah's ever. See, God is, I mean, how much clearer would God have to make it to make it a global flood? Um, apart from all this universal language that he piles into this chapter. And then you wonder, why bother building this ocean line of sides ark to escape a local flood? Just migrate like, like Lot did from Sodom, right? I mean, in the rainbow, rain, God said, I'm not going to do this ever again. And yet, if it was a local flood, that would mean God has broken his promise. Because there have been plenty of local devastating floods, okay? But God doesn't break promises, so God promised never to send another global flood. So... Now, when you look at the things that we see, I think you can get an idea the fossil record um, must have happened really quickly. I mean, here is what evolutionists believe about fossil formation. You have this fishy swimming in the ocean uh, here. It dies, it sinks to the bottom, and over millions of years, the mountains erode away, cover the thing with silt and mud, and form a fossil. But what really happens to a fish when it dies? Anyone here keep fish? When you lose them, where do they go? They float, don't they? And if you didn't remove the fish, what would happen to it? Do you think it's going to form a fossil? 
No, it's going to be rot away. It's going to decay. This is no way to form a fossil. This picture is ridiculous. This picture, you don't need to be a PhD scientist to refute this picture. Just simple observations, you know, of what happens to dead fish. And so here's a better idea. You start with a fish, but then you have the fountains of the great deep erupting. And the poor thing gets buried. But now the scavengers can't get to it. And see, it might rot away. The, the soft parts, but the bones are hard enough to be replaced by the minerals in the mud and turn into stone, you see. But the thing is, to get any sort of fossil, you need to bury it before it's scavenged or before it rots and disintegrates completely. Now, when you look at the fossils we have, this is from the Creation magazine that we'll be talking about. Do you notice one thing about this? It's a mother because she's giving birth here. Now, was this poor thing lying on the ocean floor for millions of years, slowly giving birth? But I've heard of long, difficult labor, but really, what do you think? I mean, and okay, those of you who have fish, when you feed them, do they eat quickly or slowly? Quick, so what do you think of this picture? In the middle of his lunch, right? I mean, imagine you're going to McDonald's uh, for your cholesterol burger, you go chomp, and then you're fossilized in this position. You see how quickly this must have happened. This is not slow and gradual. It must have been quick uh, to work. So let's take, now take a break from, from some of the science about the flood and just go back to where why I do this. And one thing is, as as you actually have this on your screen yourself, if I've told you earthly things and you don't believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? So earthly things include creation in six days, a global flood. So if we won't defend the Bible on those things, why will the world trust us when we talk about Jesus as the Son of God, who clearly believed those earthly things about Genesis? And just a reminder of this um, passage from the Apostle Peter to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. This is a, a command to all believers. We're supposed to be ready with reasons and answers for what we believe. And uh, let's face it, next session after, after lunch, 2 or 2.30, um, I'll probably get a lot of questions. I mean, how about these questions? I mean, you, your kids go to school or they go to a movie, they watch TV, they watch, they read a newspaper, and they get these questions of God made everything who made God. That's what you covered last week, right? That's probably part of that. Uh, and dinosaurs, I covered this this morning in the first session. What about carbon dating? And how do you get different races if we all came from Adam and Eve? And where did Cain get his wife when he wasn't able? And these are all found in this red book called the Creation Answers book. Now, if you really want to get something a bit more, you get the refuting evolution with it. It's called, it's, the, it's, it's designed for the high school student, okay? This is part of a starter pack, but also the starter pack basically has a $1 v DVD with it. So it's like, a, it's a real Jewish bargain, the starter pack, okay? <clears throat> The point is here is one university professor from North Carolina who said if Christianity dies in America, it'll not be for lack of evidence of its truthfulness, it'll be for a lack of dissemination of the evidence. You see, how do we disseminate? It's the church and the family that does it. And one another book you might like is called Christianity for Skeptics. If you just want to defend other things besides the creation issue, like reliability of the Bible, answering other religions, is Jesus the only way to God? This is a book you might like. Here, but now I want to get on to design of things. That's a very important topic. 
Because that's what Darwin is most famous for, is explaining the idea that when nothing was really designed, it evolved over millions of years. But his biggest fan today is Richard Dawkins from Oxford University. He says biology is the study of complicated things that give the appearance of having been designed for a purpose. Maybe they had this appearance because that's the reality. They really were designed for a purpose. And the Apostle Paul agrees the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even as eternal power in God. And so they are without excuse, even Dawkins and Darwin. So let's look at this. I mean, we make things ourselves, and we know an aeroplane was designed. But how do you know it was designed? Well, here's what you might look for. Lots of correct components... But also, an aeroplane is made up totally of non-flying parts. So how do I get back to Atlanta then? Well, the answer is they're organized correctly. So correct components and correct organization, and organization requires an organizer, right? I mean, here's an alternative view. See, evolution says... Uh, organization comes from matter plus time plus energy. So the matter is a junkyard part of airplane parts. Tornado provides the energy as much time as you want and you get an airplane out of it. Now how realistic is this picture though? Is that a good way of explaining an airplane? Now what if I showed you, I miscaptioned this picture. This picture is really the tornado hitting the aeroplane and turning it into a junkyard. Does that sound better? Now do you know why it sounds better though? What's the principle here? The, 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 the basic principle is there are many more ways of being a junkyard than being an aeroplane. So you apply math, you apply the energy and the time, you go to the more probable state, which is just a junkyard. Okay, tell me, parents, do you have to tell your children to mess up their rooms? Well, the reason is there are many more ways of being messy than being tidy. Simple, okay? And that's why it's harder to tidy your rooms than to mess them up. So it's very, very useful. Now, compare this to living creatures. See, living creatures can make copies of themselves. See, jet planes don't have baby jet planes. But your children are sort of copies of you and your body's made up of, of trillions of self-copying cells, microscopic cells that make copies of themselves, which is why your body grows and repairs itself because you have these self-copying cells. And you can see this, um, even a simple cell is far more complicated than the most advanced man-made machine we have. So how did that arise? I'm going to do a test for you. Again, I'm using the evolutionary idea of matter plus time plus energy, the energy in the form of a blender. And I turn the switch off. I add the energy, right? Sound? So what's the result? It's a frog smoothie, okay? Now, if I left this going for millions of years, will a frog ever hop out of this? Now you realize you could can and sterilize and seal it and it's safe to eat for years. 
you will not get food poisoning because food poisoning is caused by living creatures, microscopic creatures, bacteria give you food poisoning. But the thing is, in a can of frog smoothie or can of sardines or Georgia peaches, whatever, okay, you've got things that are once living, they've got all components of life there in the can, but you can leave it, no living thing will ever form in there. You can put whatever energy you want to, you can have as much time as you want, you're never going to get something living forming in that can. Unless you... It broke the seal somehow, and contamination came in from outside. So what does that teach you? That life comes only from life. Evolution says life once came from non-living chemicals. But see, every time you eat canned food and don't get food poisoning, you're showing evolution doesn't make sense. And when you go to the, to, to the um, amazing complexity of even simple living things, I think you can see why this would be. Like, we eat food for energy. Now, but in our cells, the energy is this stuff here called ATP. And your body makes its own weight in this every day and consumes it. Cyanide kills you by stopping this being made. But now it's known that it's made by the tiniest motor in the universe. This animated sequence shows the ATP synthase enzyme in operation. The animation is based on an incredible series of scientific discoveries. Only the colors show artistic license. ATP, or adenosine triphosphate, is the energy currency of the cell. ATP is produced by a tiny molecular rotary motor, rotating it up to 7,000 RPM. These are so small that a hundred thousand would fit side by side in a millimeter. A current of protons drives the motor, unlike man-made electric motors which use electrons. This portion of the enzyme is where adenosine diphosphate is combined with a phosphate ion in the presence of a catalyst to produce ATP, which is then released, making way for the next cycle. A top view of the enzyme shows the sequential operation. Almost every biochemical process in your body requires ATP. Such a nanomachine exhibits all the characteristics of super-intelligent design. ATP is vital for life, and many of these motors were needed before the first living cell could exist. An evolutionary impossibility. So every living thing has these motors. And that's not all they have. You see, going back to this picture here, what would really show design here is if they found the instruction manual in the glove compartment. Then we know it's been designed. This is actually what we have. We have the famous DNA molecule, the instruction manual for life. It stands for definitely no accident. We actually deoxyribonucleic acid. Now, now even the simplest cell has about... 600 kilobytes of information but it must be incredibly compressed. The data compression software is amazing because it took over 100 computers um, running for 9 or 10 hours to simulate what happens when the cell divides in two. So the data compression here is amazing. And this is the simplest living thing, okay? 600 kilobytes. Now we have a lot more. We have 5,000 times as much. We have about 3 gigabytes of information in every one of our cells. And if the information was written out in paper and ink, it would take a thousand Bible-sized books to write it out. 
Mind you, it's only 200 times the size of the IRS tax code. The thing is, the book is written in in English, but the book is written with ink molecules on paper, okay? But the ink didn't write the book. It's very important. There's nothing in the chemistry of the ink to write the book. You couldn't pour ink on a page and get the book. You required the mind to arrange the ink molecules into the letters and words and sentences and paragraphs. See, in exactly the same way, there's nothing in the chemistry of the DNA to write out the messages of life. That didn't come from the DNA chemistry. It rides on the DNA in the same way as the book rides upon the ink, but did not come from the ink. And you also need a language. Otherwise, you get the wrong message. Like, if I gave you a gift, you'd all be happy, wouldn't you? Because in English it means a present, something you have for free. Now, if you were Germans, would you be happy if I gave you a gift? I suspect not, because gift means poison in German. This is the cyanide gas capsules, gift gas. The Nazis knew what they were doing when they murdered millions of Jews with this stuff in their death camps. That was an evolutionary philosophy through and through the Nazi Germany. You want to see what evolution looks like? Go to Nazi Germany. Elimination of the inferior races. That's, that's Darwinism. Okay, so gift in German means poison. You see, a, a, a German I actually was talking in New Zealand, and a German confirmed what I was saying. He said when he first came to New Zealand, he was appalled by our Christmas customs because he tried to poison our families. You see why it's so important to get the right message, the right language. But you see, DNA is actually multiple languages. Now they know they're multiple languages on the same part of a DNA. So a book you can read in English and German and backwards. See, one language is hard enough to explain by time and chance and energy, but multiple languages is what we have. And I'll show you what happens when one of the languages is decoded to make the proteins of life. This animation demonstrates how the digital information encoded within DNA is used to direct protein synthesis. This is a DNA double helix containing the digital code which directs the cell in all aspects of operation. And here we see a protein complex called an RNA polymerase traveling down the DNA strand. As it moves down the strand, it carefully unwinds the DNA, preparing it for transcription. Inside the polymerase, we see a single-stranded copy of the original instructions being assembled as individual bases are positioned and added to the growing strand. A stop code marks the end of the protein specification, at which point this copy, known as a messenger RNA transcript, exits the polymerase and heads towards a two-part chemical manufacturing machine called the ribosome. While the messenger RNA moves towards the ribosome, transfer RNA molecules attached to specific amino acids in preparation for assembly. As the messenger RNA transcript passes through the ribosome, the process of translation begins. Using the instructions encoded on the messenger RNA as a template, the transfer RNA molecules align specific sequences of bases to corresponding amino acids, creating a protein chain. As this chain exits the ribosome, it is met by chaperones which prevent premature folding while escorting the protein to a barrel-shaped machine called a chaperonin. This machine helps fold the protein into the precise shape required to perform its function. 
Although it is unclear how the chaperonin achieves this, we do know that accurate folding is essential in order for the protein to accomplish its intended function. Once the protein is complete, it is released into the cytoplasm to do its job. This is really, uh, every living thing has to have that sort of decoding machine. And it's a bit of a problem for evolution. It's called a chicken and egg type problem. You know, which came first, the chicken or the egg, you know, that sort of thing. It's a case that DNA has the instructions to build its own decoding machines. But you can't read those instructions unless you already have the decoding machine. But you can't get the decoding machines unless you build them from the instructions. So you have to have everything working almost perfectly right from the start. Otherwise, life can't even start. And I just want to point out something else. You see, natural selection can't get you here, okay? Because natural selection say, is really saying this thing is fitter than this thing, therefore this thing leaves more offspring. So what you have to have before natural selection, you must have reproduction. So natural selection can't get you to the first self-reproducing thing. All you have are time and matter and energy. You haven't got natural selection to get you this far. But now I have a bit of talk about what natural selection can do. Now, supposing you have the first living cell, you still got to get it up to where we are now. And certainly there is change. Change happens. It's not evolutionary change. See, this is what evolution is supposed to be about. You might say it's time plus energy plus matter plus natural selection from first cell that came from some sort of primordial soup to get to where we are. Okay, so it's from goo to you via the zoo. But this means going uphill with information. See, the, the first living cell has 600 kilobytes. We have three gigabytes. So is the information content going uphill with more and more genes and information and instruction? Are more instructions writing themselves? I want to go through what actually happens briefly. <clears throat> So what I've got, I've got these dogs. You, you may have heard that dog breeds are proof of evolution. Darwin thought so. But what actually happens though? See, I've got these breeds of dog here. This has got a medium fur. You notice the medium length of fur here? Because they've got a gene for short fur and a gene for long fur. You combine them, you have medium fur. <clears throat> Now you have your information in pairs. See, one half came from your father, one from your mother. When you have, marry and have kids, you pass on one half. Your spouse passes on the other half, which is why your kids look like both of you, okay? Um, and when, when you are conceived, fertilized, a fertilized egg, that's a new beginning of life, okay? The two halves come to make one whole. So when these dogs marry and have pumps, what could happen? They could both get a short fur gene and have short fur, very noticeable. Or they can have one of each, like these two. Now, what would happen if they both inherited a long fur gene? What would they look like? You see, Darwin saw this and thought, here, yeah, here's new, two new varieties, short fur and a long fur uh, variety. That must be evolution. But Darwin didn't know genetics. That was a creationist, a monk living in what's now the Czech Republic. Gregor Mendel discovered genetics. And what he realized, that God pre-programmed a lot of genetic variation into his created kind so they could have lots of varieties and adapt to different environments. So it's variation within the created kind um, by what God has already pre-programmed. 
Now, this also applies to humans as well. You see, Adam and Eve, um, see, let's get a different, suppose it's different skin color. Do we have different skin colors? I don't believe so. White, okay, white, me, not white. They call me white. I'm not white. I'm clean and all. I'm light brown. I actually have the same pigmentation as everyone else here, just less of it. I've got quite a lot of this stuff in my hair, a medium amount in my eyes, not very much in my skin. Okay, it's the same stuff. It's called melanin. Um, it's a very dark pigment. All that happens is they're different amounts of the same stuff. So you could say we don't have different skin colors. We have different shades of one hue. Different amounts of it. So that's why when you go to what Adam and Eve must have looked like, I think they must have been medium. You see, the, the capital letter here says make lots of melanin, so you're dark. The small letter says make a little bit of it. And again, capital B is lots of it. A small b is a little bit of it. So you see, in one generation, they could pass their short, their, their, sorry, their, their light skin genes onto their son who's very fair, all their dark skin genes to their daughter who's very dark. Um, this daughter is a bit lighter than her parents. This son is a bit darker. So in one generation, if God had pre-programmed this variation in the beginning, one generation's all it would take to have different skin shades. And we see this happening now. These two little girls are twins. Because her parents are a biracial couple. You see, a black Jamaican father, a white English mother. You see, so they've got, uh, they're a bit closer to what Adam and Eve would have been like, you see, with the, the mixture programmed back into them. So again, in one generation, you have the, this pair of twins with very different appearances. But this is a sort of an echo of what Adam's fa- and Eve's family could have looked like. And we see it happening quite a lot, where these twins are different skin shades. So if, if it can happen now, it could certainly have happened with God's original programming of genetic variation in Adam and Eve. Now let's take this picture a step further. What happens if they go through the Ice Age? Who's going to survive the Ice Age here, you think? I think the long fur ones are protected from the cold, right? So the other ones will die of the cold and only the, sh- the long fur ones survive and pass on their genes, which means all they can pass on are the long fur genes. So the next generation is long fur. But what's actually happening? This, this is natural selection. See, natural selection was discovered by creations, but what you have to realize, it's actually a culling force, not a creative force. It's actually removed the genes for the short fur. It hasn't created anything. It's actually taken something out. So you might say it's going the opposite direction of what evolution needs. Evolution needs things to go uphill, more and more things. This is getting less and less. And the thing is, natural selection explains survival of the fitted, but not the arrival of the fitted. The arrival was already there before natural selection. Before natural selection worked to cull some things. So what's left for evolution to do? The only game in town is a copying mistake. A copying mistake called a mutation. That's when your genes have a typo. I mean, wouldn't your, um, this be better if it had a typo in it, would you think? Well, no, obviously not. Again, more ways of making it worse than making it better. You see, so you try to avoid typos. You have typo correction. And we have typo correction software in ourselves. We're trying to stop them. But sometimes they get through. We live in a fallen world. We have typos now. 
like this poor bulldog that has to be born by C-section. Or this one, uh, TNR, totally naked rooster. Now Chick-fil-A would like this, okay? No need to pluck, but the poor rooster freezes in the winter and fries in summer. So, so this is no good for the poor little rooster, okay? And so mutations cause lots of disease. They're not going up at all. They're going down. They're ruining things. They're not making things better. <clears throat> so where does the new information come from? I've shown you. See, the, this picture here, this, this, this evolution picture requires information to go uphill but we are seeing sorting out of what was already there we see mutation uh, natural selection culling some of that and we see also mutations that corrupt it so where is the new stuff going to come from well let's see what richard dawkins says professor dawkins can you give an example of a genetic mutation or an evolutionary process which can be seen to increase the information in the genome As you see, he couldn't answer the, the the world's leading evolutionists couldn't explain where the new information comes. That's a key issue they need to do. And he's also said evolution has been observed. It's just that it hasn't been observed while it's happening. So let's use him to, to say why we do what we do. You see, it's interesting. Daw, Darwin, Dawkins admits Darwin made it possible to be an intellectually fulfilled atheist. He needs evolution as a crutch for his faith for his religious belief. And what are we supposed to do about it? We're supposed to demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against knowledge of God. We take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. We're not just an evolution-bashing ministry. We're not just a, a design ministry. We don't want to point people to Jesus Christ as the creator and as the savior. So how can we help with that? I mean, let's face it, there is a fade-out of what you remember. So we have things that can help with that. And one is our quarterly magazine, which yeah, so it comes out every three months. It's very attractive. It's also our best witnessing tool. Here is a, an example of someone who is witnessed to by Creation Magazine. It admits that every magazine undermines evolution, presents the truth of creation, and also has the gospel. Every issue presents the gospel. And here's an example of how what a great family equipping magazine, uh, equipping tool it is, because a lady who said she encouraged herself as a believer, but also to teach my children the truth of creation. We're supposed to uh, pass on this to our children and to witness. Because let's face it, it's not a question of, of do I witness to my children? It's a question of who is doing the witnessing. Someone is witnessing to your children and grandchildren, regardless of what you do. Someone is witnessing. So how about we do witnessing as well? And that's why we have a chance to subscribe. And what you do, you get this thing coming through um, and you put your name and your email and your postal address so we can actually send it to you. Not quite yet, not quite yet, please. Not yet, please. Not yet. Sorry, sorry. Uh, I want to explain what, again, I've got to explain what to do, you see. Um, again, you, you, we've got to send it to your postal address. But also, it comes with a, a free digital version that you can give to five different people. And the thing is, what we have to do is we have to run your credit card for seven fifty. Now, I spend more than that uh, when I go to Chick-fil-A for lunch. Okay? But every uh, three months, we will debit your credit card or your check account for uh, $7.50. That's how it works, you see. So you've got to uh, authorize us to do We have to check your credit cards with um, uh, the credit card you run through here. Okay? 
And then you take it off and you pass the thing, the, the, the clipboard to the next person. So go ahead and pass, guys. Thanks for waiting for me. Okay, and it goes on to five different devices uh, around the world. You've got kids or grandkids somewhere else in the world. You can give them the code that will come to you and they can read a digital copy. And you can get some gifts as well. And these are English gifts and not German gifts, I promise you, okay? And the first get, you get the first issue today, but you also get two free DVDs. One's the Darwin documentary that we have. We produce during the Darwin Bicentennial and also that video Fallout that I mentioned in the first session. There's a short DVD called Fallout where we actually interview these students. Can you pass it on to the next person, please? They have to have a chance too, right? And this is an example of what you see in it. See, here's one of the issues here. It's called How Do Dating Methods Work? And this is not about how boys meet girls. It's about how old things are and how we know. And here's an example of how soft things can fossilize. Darwin thought this could never happen, but under a flood it can happen. And every issue uh, has an interview with a Bible-believing PhD scientist. You've got kids through high school, they're being taught there aren't any real scientists who believe the Bible. Well, here is this uh, proof. Every issue you have a Bible-believing scientist interviewed. And here is some design stuff here too. And how humans are copying God's design. And you, you're familiar with this. This is actually from a creation magazine, you see. That's why we, we have these things. Here's an example on radiocarbon dating. How carbon dating is actually proof of the biblical time scale. It's actually an enemy of the millions of years. Donald. That was found in creation magazine too. And every magazine has a section four page for the, for the kid. We've started, we're starting this year uh, to do a series on dinosaurs for the kids. Now, speaking of kids, you might also like this um, pack for f- of five kids' books, hardcover, and exploring geology for older kids. This is for the younger kids here. This is for older ones. And, of course, you've got things like um, a new one, How Noah's Flood Shaped the Earth. This is a high school curriculum called The Question of Origins. And this is an example by an expert who's actually made things by using things in the animal kingdom to make machines that are revolutionary so very useful. And of course, I will say my, my, the Genesis account, the commentary I mentioned earlier, um, it's the only commentary in the world that talks about dinosaurs and design and natural selection, as well as why the whole thing is important. I hope I've explained why Genesis is important for the believer uh, to work. And of course, we have DVDs, including this, this one, which is in the theatres and in many theatres around this country and around Australia. So don't forget, at 2.30, I'll, I'll be fielding any question you would like to ask about the creation evolution issue or anything else you want to ask that sort of uh, within the Bible, Christianity, what, whatever you'd like to do. So uh, God bless everyone. So back to the boss here. Thank you.